You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hi, I'm Sonal Rupani, standing in for Georgia Tolley on The Agenda. And on the show today, we had a real focus in on careers. It's all because January is a really common time for people to decide to leave their job. So what is the best way to quit? We had an expert in on that. We also talked about the trend of people moving towards the gig economy and freelancing. But it often comes with a lot of challenges itself. How can you manage that? We'll let you know with some advice from our experts. Plus, if you're still struggling to find some Christmas presents, our gadget guru and tech expert, Dan, joins us to tell us what kind of gifts you can get in all different kinds of budgets. We're doing a bit of a careers hour this hour. That's because we see a lot of trends in the workforce. Of course, as we move into the new year, that's when a lot of people are rethinking what they want to do with their careers. We've seen a lot of people going solo or moving into the gig economy, working as freelancers and contractors and finding greater flexibility through that as well. And we want to start with the topic actually of quitting. The reason is because UK researchers pinpointed that the most popular day of the year for workers to quit their job, over in the UK at least, is January 31st. There was another similar survey that said January 21st, but you get the idea, kind of not straight at the beginning of the year, but just a couple of weeks later. And that theme seems to be pretty universal because the new year is a time for a new opportunity for a number. In the U.S., statistically, January and February are the months with the greatest number of job openings, also the largest number of people applying for them at the same time. Tons of potential reasons for this. You know, of course, you have that new year spirit of of trying something new. Um, People coming back after the holidays might have the work blues. It's also just a time of reflection as the office is sometimes a little bit more quiet end of December and early January. So we wanted to figure out if this applies here in the UAE and also get in touch with us on 4001 if this is something that you're considering at the moment. You can totally keep those messages anonymous, of course, for you. Joining us now is Samia Hassan. She is founder of Unwind the Grind. She's also a millennial career development coach. Samia, good morning. Thanks for joining us on the agenda. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So just to kick us off, tell us a little bit about Unwind the Grind and and why do you focus on millennials and Gen Z a, a bit as well? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I'm a millennial myself. I started Unwind the Grind eight years ago. And at the time I was working in the corporate world in a very young organization. And I noticed that not only myself, but my colleagues, everybody working, approached work differently. It was not the typical um, mindset of clocking in, clocking out. Um, you know, they uh, millennials, Gen Z, see work differently and they require different, um, they have a different set of values when it comes to work. Uh, and that's what got me interested. So I started a career development platform where I work with millennials and Gen Z on helping them figure out the right career path, how to package and brand their skills, how to find the right job, and also organizations on how they can engage and retain their uh, young workforce. And do you see this trend of certain timings being common for people to actually leave their jobs? Are you seeing a trend of this peaking in ge- around January in the UAE I do. as well? I do. Yeah. Yes, there is a trend. And as you know, you mentioned a couple of reasons. On top of that, the fiscal year for most organizations is January to December. So there are new budgets, mm-hmm. more hiring opportunities. And people typically take a lot of time to think before they switch, right? So it's about five, six, seven months, maybe a year, two years of contemplation. And then when they get a moment to sit down, unwind, reflect, be with their friends and family, connect. So when they come back in January, it's like a fresh vengeance with 
what they don't like about work. Uh, and then towards the end of Jan, it's like, you know, the feeling of, ah, oh, I'm not doing quite well on my New Year resolutions. I need to change something. Mm-hmm. And that's where they, you know, just start uh, applying and looking out and making the most of it. I think it's really interesting that you brought up the point of how long it takes people to quit a job after they've kind of decided or had that initial seed of an idea that they're not so happy. Because it's really easy to go back and forth on for months, even years, I would say for some before finally making that decision, you know, mustering up the courage to go in and actually submit your resignation letter. So if you're starting to get that initial thought that it's time to move on, how do you navigate that? How do you think, oh, this is temporary. It's a phase. Let me let the moment pass. I'm just having Mm -hmm. a temporary unhappiness versus really thinking it's time for me to start making some concrete plans to change this situation. Yeah, and this is what I work with my clients on. It all boils down to self-awareness and awareness of the situation. So it's important to be clear on what is the criteria that you have for work. What are the important factors that you require when it comes to your career? And then doing an assessment, maybe a cost-benefit analysis on how your workplace is stacking up against that. You know, if you require flexibility, if you require learning, growth, meaning, purpose, everybody's different. We all have our individualized needs. And this is where the millennial Gen Z aspect comes in as well, right? They are different and they require different things. So if for a sustained long period of time, you are not getting what you require from your workplace, and typically it also boils down to relationships with people, your manager, the culture, um, pay benefits, uh, then it's time to reassess. And it's always better to do it sooner than later because, you know, on average, it would take anywhere between six to nine months to find a new job. So if when you have that, you know, initial feeling of dread, "Eh, I don't want to get up in the morning, go to work, get started, start looking. Create some options for yourself. Samia, should you quit your job even when you don't have prospects lined up? What if it's, you know, you're really... You really can't wake up in the morning and go to work anymore. So I don't typically recommend people to quit before they found something. And that's because the way the market works. So it's very hard to find something when you are unemployed. You know, so I would say start your prep, uh, start lining up contacts, network, do the hustle, apply for jobs. Uh, But of course, if it's affecting your mental health in such a drastic way that you simply cannot, then of course, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. And should people consider timing with this? Because I think, okay, maybe right after your bonus, you've had a bit of a financial bump. But I suppose you need to consider hiring cycles as well. You said the hiring cycle sort of peak or the new jobs start to pop Mm -hmm. up mostly in January. When in the year is usually what are some of the best times to quit? So in the UAE, the hiring cycles hover around Jan, Feb, March, maybe early April and September, October, November. So the the two cycles where people switch a lot would be these two. And then also because, you know, after summer, you've had holiday, you've had time to relax and you come back. So um, in line with how the market and seasonality works, people um, tie up with that. One of the things that you do is help people find a bit of a purpose and, and help people find the right fit. Because part of leaving a job is the idea of some aspect of that is not right for you. Either it's maybe the company itself, maybe it's the industry and you need to make a switch. I mean, how do you approach that? How can people um, understand a little bit better if they feel like they're not in the right place but have no idea where to go from there? What, what are some of the next steps people can take? Sure. Uh, It boils down to self-awareness. So knowing if you are enjoying what you're doing, what is it that you find meaning in, purpose in, passion in. So as part of the coaching, we really delve deeper into who people really are at the core and what they have to offer and then work towards how they can find something, a career that lines up with who they are. Um, And it's a deep self-discovery process. It's about talking, you know, to different people, researching different fields, prototyping, designing a career and a life that speaks to you. 
It's one of those things you hear about. I always feel like it's so out of reach, though. And, and some people say a job is just a job. I don't want it to be my life. I, you know, I'm happy to just go do what I have to do, get a paycheck, even if they don't love it, and that they spend their, their free time doing the things that they love. How do you react to that sentiment when you hear it? Well, I think a job is never just a job. A place where you spend eight to 10 hours of your day, it really makes up your life. So you better enjoy and like what you do. And I think this is also where millennials and Gen Z are different because life and work are so intertwined now. It's so integrated, you know, with technology, we're always connected, always working. It's important to find meaning and purpose in what you do. And this is one of the key aspects that they look for when they are uh, looking to find a job or even to switch careers. You know, you see, I see people all the time in my work because uh, I work on career transition on people switching, not just from functional switches like, you know, from HR to marketing or, uh, you know, banking to um, healthcare, but complete career overhauls. You know, they were in a creative field and now they have switched to more functional stuff or they were more into banking and now they become a singer, you know, Uh, and it takes time. It takes courage. It takes a lot of work, uh, patience. uh, But at the end of the day, if you really persist and persevere, um, and and this is including myself, I you know, switched eight years ago from corporate marketing to now HR consulting, um, uh, you know, you you find joy and meaning in what you do. And for people that are trying to make a career switch, but perhaps they don't have the luxury of being able to take some time off to reskill, let's say, maybe financially, they really need to go straight into a new job. What's the best way to do that? Because when you're in one profession or one field, it's really difficult to convince somebody in a totally different field to give you a chance to give you a shot, um, because I do think the HR system is still very much set up to have you done this before? Can you do this exact thing? Can you tell me you've done this before? As opposed Absolutely. to do you have the requisite skill set? <clears throat> Are you kind of an ambitious person who can learn this new job and do it better than anybody else can? So because of that, how do you convince somebody when you're trying to make a career switch that you could be the best candidate for that role, even if you haven't done that thing before? You're right. And and HR and even the way the job application process is set up, it favors people who have the similar experience in the, you know, um, industry or job role that they're applying to. So career changes are at a massive disadvantage. And what I tell people is try to build your experience, your skills while you are on the job. So try to find some time either in your company, you can do some lateral moves, uh, try to find your job role that better fits your needs, try to get projects on the side, side hustles, you know, some gigs, um, uh, freelancing work where volunteering work even that's not paid so that you can build your skills and you have experience a little bit of experience to show Mm. for when you make that transition to a new career right we've had a message in from Ali who's disagreeing with the idea that it being unemployed makes it difficult to find a job he thinks maybe it could be the other way around as long as the individual meets the job requirements and really wants to get it I mean I guess have you seen that in in your field of work that when people are unemployed that they've managed to actually turn it around pretty quickly and and find the right thing what sort of skill sets does it take or what sort of characteristics in a person make them able to do that Yeah of course it's not impossible of course to find a job when you're unemployed it just becomes a little bit harder because you're not you're you know it's you have to explain if you have as long as you have a good explanation of uh, the longer the people are unemployed the harder it is to come up with you know a clear uh, answer of what are you doing how how did you use this time? So yes, if you focus on um, marketing yourself, branding yourself, packaging yourself, articulating your skill set and value proposition in the right way. Uh, yeah, I've, I mean, I have worked with clients all the time who are unemployed and looking for work. Um, it's a matter of right timing and opportunity. Some people get it faster, some people don't. 
I've got some friends who are obsessed with uh, taking courses on Coursera. Sometimes, you know, they'll pay for a 13,000 dirham course uh, for, at Harvard to take a short course. Do those courses matter in terms of, you know, in a millennial or Gen Z workforce setting? Absolutely. So upskilling is a big theme when it comes to millennial Gen Z. And not only that, but also the way the work environment and uh, the career landscape is now set up because uh, AI is here, technology is here, things are changing so fast. If you are not going to upskill, you're going to be left behind. Um, so upskilling, uh, whether it's about taking courses or learning on the job or, you know, doing something on a side, a project through which you learn is, is really uh, critical. Yeah. When you're looking for a job, what's the most effective way to find it? Because I think a lot of people still do the online applications, even though we know by now through all the research, all the surveys, that networking, you know, personal networks is the most effective method a lot of the times. It's almost like a psychological crutch. I know somebody who's been out of work for a long time still says, I'm trying, I'm trying, but just sending their CV out into the the ether on those apply buttons. What should a person really be doing? Let's say in theory, you don't have much of a network. So mm. you sort of rely on that. Is it is it ever an effective method? Or is it really just a bit of a waste of time? No, I think you hit the nail on the head. It is networking. You know, online job applications are a black hole where your CV goes. And sometimes for weeks, you don't hear back from them. So I would recommend, yeah, do that. Do the bare minimum. Send applications. But 80% of people globally find jobs through networking. So it's not like a local or regional thing. It, this is how the world works. And I think networking is cringe because of the way we approach it, which is quite transactional sometimes. Mm. Oh, hey, I'm looking for a job. Please find attach my CV and help me find a job. No, that's not networking. That's very transactional asking favors right off the bat. So what I tell people to do is build relationships. The sooner you start, the better it is. At your workplace, ex-colleagues, alumni, university, communities, associations, the you know, sky's the limit. And you don't really need to be an extrovert to go like, oh, you know, I'm not extroverted. I don't go to events. I don't talk to people. It's just about finding um, connection and helping people, adding value to what they're looking for so that when you are looking for something, which definitely should be information and introductions, not asking them for finding a job because uh, it's too big of an ask, um, then they'll be there. They'll be there to help you. So I've been listening to this podcast. I don't remember what it's called, but it's about how to network because, yes, I agree. Networking is cringe. I'm sure so. No, uh, you will agree with me. Sina knows me too well. <laughs> yes. But um, yeah, one of the experts said it's it's better to be more interested Ted than interesting. So you have to focus mm -hmm. on what other people, you know, find out more about what other people are like or what they need. And then it just naturally flows the conversation. Totally, totally. And it's about active listening. It's about curiosity. It's about asking questions. The issue is what happens? People start too late. So they're too desperate by the time they're networking and they are on a timeline. I need to find a job in a month. So how, what can you do? Can you help me? Can you connect? And then people, if you don't add value, if you have not have that relational capital, that emotional bank account in a relationship, they're not going to go around, you know, helping you basically. Yeah. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Now, really quickly, before we let you go, Samia, we're talking next about the gig economy, about trends when it comes to freelancing or setting off on your own, setting your own company, setting up your own company, but perhaps as an individual or a small team. Are you seeing this trend as something a lot of people are desiring to sort of take their own career into their own hands? 
Yes, yes. So 60% of all jobs will pertain to the gig economy by 2030. This is what we are looking at. And millennials, Gen Zs are riding the trend because in the next two years, we'll have 75% of UAE workforce that is millennials and Gen Z. So we have a lot of uh, small, medium enterprises, uh, freelancing, a lot of multiple careers. So this idea that, you know, you have to be stuck to one career, one nine to five job, and that's it. And then you look for something else is kind of dying. So people, especially Gen Z, they want to do an experiment, multiple things at the same time they're passionate and talented about so many things so you'd see them you know freelancing on upwork and doing some social media on the side for a different brand and then having a part-time consulting uh, you know job um, as well so i think what employers need to focus on is how their staffing and recruitment model can match that you can no longer rely on full-time contractual um, in-person employees you need to have like variety of you know full-time part-time contractual outsource and see how you balance that just the last question for you before you go because we've gotten this in on the text lines Uh, is it possible to change jobs when you're in your early 50s or is it too late and this is an interesting message that's come in because just yesterday we were talking about age discrimination in the workforce here so on the one Mm -hmm. hand yes in theory you should say that anybody should be able to change jobs whenever they want (laughs) but as we were sort of discussing with some recruitment experts yesterday, people are actually quite blatant about saying, I don't want somebody over a certain age. So how much more of a challenge is it when you're, let's say, over 50? And if you are, how can you position that if you are trying to make that change? Mm -hmm. Ageism is a thing. Racism is a thing. All the isms, you know, make it difficult to to change and switch careers. But people do all the time. One of my clients is coming to my mind. He was 61 in Oman and successfully changed a long haul 35 year career in healthcare uh, to move to hospitality. It was still sales, but it was a different kind of sales. And it took a year and a half. It wasn't easy. Again, banking on uh, first identifying and defining what is it that I want, uh, lining up the contacts and networks, speaking to people, and then curating, creating opportunities that work for you. I think at that stage, when you're that senior, it's also about knowing how I can curate a role that works for me rather than just banking on what's out there. Brilliant. Samia, thank you so much for coming in and answering some of those questions from our listeners, from us as well. Thank you for having me. The voice there of Samia Hassan. She is founder of Unwind the Grind. You can always find her as well. She is a millennial and Gen Z career development coach. But as you've heard, she has older clients as well. So if you want, you can reach out to her. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. We're looking into freelancing now on The Agenda because let's be honest, I think anecdotally we've all seen a growing number of people looking towards being a bit more independent in their careers, making their own terms in in terms of how they deliver the work. In the U.S., 73 million people have freelanced this year. That's up by almost 3 million from 2022. A lot of big companies rely on freelancers as well. Exactly. Now, in March 2019, Google's workforce actually comprised of 120,000 freelancers. That's more than their permanent employees, which was around 102,000. This was before the mass, you know, redundancies, of course. You know, actually, one of my closest friends from college is one of those 120,000 contractors or freelancers. She worked for Google as an employee, made that decision, but kept them on as a client. It has changed her life She was miserable commuting because Silicon Valley, working in Silicon Valley, commuting into the office was like a two hour thing every every time she had to live in a part of the country she didn't want to live in. She lives in sort of upstate Vermont on a farm like environment now, still does work, is still getting that Google money. But 
you know, totally on her own terms. Love a bit of Google money, but staying on a form. (laughs) You know what I mean, though? Um, And, you know, we're seeing this in the UAE as well. Freelancing is more common or people setting up their own independent businesses, as we saw from Samia, who was with us earlier. That's also in part thanks to more affordable and flexible visa options that are available in recent years. And a lot more people getting involved with this. So two women who could tell us a little bit more about this and attest to this are the D'Souza sisters. We've got Elrona Silva D'Souza. D'Souza in with us. Thanks for joining us, Alrana. Thanks for having me. And we have Desma D'Souza as well. Desma, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having us. They're both managing partners at SNK Consulting, which focuses on different areas re- related to freelancing. So if you do have any questions for them, you can get them in on 4001, also on our WhatsApp, 04871 But Desma, let, also, let, let me start with you on this one, because you've come up with something of a freelancer's blueprint. You've realized that it's there's a lot of people that want to be freelancing, but it's pretty tough once you leave your full-time job, the expectations you come out with and what the reality is for freelancers. It's a bit difficult for people to navigate. So tell us a little bit about what you guys do. Sure. So let me just start with a bit of a story. And this is my story of when I kind of, you know, entered uh freelancing. So I took a year sabbatical from my corporate life. And then my first freelance gig was very kindly given to me by my sister, Elrona. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I thought it was simple as as just as I would deliver something at work, I did a piece of work, and that was it. And I very quickly learned it wasn't. There was so much more to freelancing that I had to learn very quickly. So freelancing, essentially, you're a solopreneur. It's a business. You have to find the clients. You have to figure how you're going to deliver your service. And then you have to figure, you know, how much you're going to charge for these services. So there's a massive business angle to it, which I learned. And then we kind of in our business, uh, which is now SNK Consulting, we had to see how we could take that learning and make it use that information to help other freelancers out there. And that's how we came up with the freelancers blueprint. And Elrana, have you seen this trend here in the UAE since you've been working with freelancers? What kind of changes have you seen to the number and the interest in, in this style of work? Um, there is a lot of interest. Many people are looking at freelancing either as a side hustle or as a full time, you know, and be part of the gig economy. You're right. The visa process and the licensing process has made it more convenient and more accessible. And also they have seen more information out there locally that people are doing this and doing this well. So it becomes more appealing. In, for instance, our uh, company, SNK Consulting, is fully managed by different freelancers. We use uh, freelancers for digital marketing. We use freelancers for accounting. So it is pretty much my our entire ecosystem is based, used with freelancers. So that's happening now. What's the biggest struggle that you see for freelancers, especially people who are new into it? What are what are the biggest things they kind of get wrong at the beginning? Um, very good question. So a couple of things that they do get wrong is one is when it comes to how they charge the money aspect of things. And the other one is how they deliver the piece of work. You know, the the relate they. If you're new to freelancing, then you need to do something what we call as a corporate detox to kind of detach yourself from having this um, environment that you've worked with. You are now representing yourself as your business. So how you come across to the client is sometimes not the same as they have in their minds. 
I'm so interested in the how you charge as a freelancer, because I think what I've seen, again, anecdotal and maybe different people work differently with this. But oftentimes people will think I'm just an individual. I don't have a big company name behind me. Therefore, I need to make sure and I really need this work because I'm a little bit more reliant on it. Um, I need to make sure my estimate is not too high so I don't sort of push people away. And so that they don't decline the work. And probably I'm guessing a lot of people undershoot what they should be charging. Is that something that resonates? Have you seen that? Uh, yes, they undershoot and they don't necessarily apply proper assumptions and mechanics to doing the pricing of their service fees. So there is, you know, methods and tools available to, to get your pricing right in terms of your client. There are benefits of not having overheads, but yet you have to differentiate between paying yourself and paid, getting paid for the work. It's not one and the same thing, although as a freelancer, you might have that mindset. So it's, diff it's important to disconnect you from the job that you're doing and then you know, figure out how much you're going to get paid for and how much you're going to pay yourself from that. Right. And Desma, I'll put this one to you because a lot of people the legality of it is something they're confused about as well. We know that licensing has kind of changed. Yeah, a lot of people shifting into this still, they look at the options and they think, which one is the best one for me? What's the best way to approach the different licensing options to be a freelancer here? Yeah. So like you're absolutely right. There are so many different options and then it, it can be really overwhelming and really confusing. So, you know, a simple way is to reach out to someone who's done this before to guide you through the process. Ask, there's so many community groups of other business owners or freelancers willing to kind of walk you through what to look for, what questions to ask, what to be aware of. And so that's a good place to start. Ask for help. Also, you know, speak to multiple providers and ask for as many questions, uh, like don't be afraid to ask more questions. Because at the end of the day, you have to not only think of year one, but you have to think of year two and year three. So sometimes you'll hear an offer that says, you know, get your license for next to nothing in year one, but then it adds up in year two and year three. So you're very attracted by that first offer that you're, you know, when you hit year two, then you're like, oh, actually, I wasn't aware of this. And then at some point, if you want to close your freelancing business here, then that's another question to ask as well, because that comes at a cost. So these are, you know, there's a number of questions that go with it. Uh, so yeah, so being aware of all of this is really important. Uh, Ruma has been in touch because we were talking about how to get paid as a freelancer, how much you should actually charge. And Aruma said, well, it's awesome that corporates are a lot more open to using freelancers instead of more established brand names. Freelancing also runs the risk of undercutting each other to try and win business. Corporates also don't know what or how much they'll pay and often think freelancers mean they can pay the bottom of the barrel for that. Is that something that, that you're finding as well when it comes to costs that because one freelancer is kind of helping to start this spiral downwards almost in, in how much they should be charging. Yes. It's like almost like a race to the bottom, as we say. And it's not something that, you know, we should encourage. Um, there's enough opportunities for everybody out there. And it's about creating a very thriving, sustainable community of freelancers, regardless of what service you're offering. So you have to kind of know what your value is. It's not about the previous salary you got, and it's not about how much someone else is making it. You, you have to define the price for yourself and have 
commitment and conviction that you have done the math right and not get swayed because someone else is undercutting. And very one thing to add to that is if you do a lot of sales and you've done a lot of networking, you're not relying on one piece of work coming in, then you have more confidence of being strong on your price and not having to be swayed by some other freelancers, you know, cutting the price or something. And let's not forget when it comes to pricing, you have a lot of costs to consider because, you know, the benefits that you get from a full like full-time job with a company really add up. Healthcare is so expensive yes. to secure as an individual. So how do a lot of your freelancers manage this in terms of ma- making sure they get healthcare that they can afford? So that's what we say, right? When you talk about getting paid for work and paying yourself is how you add all these overheads that you don't necessarily see as an employee is how do you calculate all of that value and then build up your price. And it's not you you get everything from one piece of work. It's how you amortize that money, how you calculate it, and how you make sure that you you have those sort of numbers. So you create a budget, you create the numbers that you expect, you review. You have to have that financial discipline of managing how much money you make through freelancing. And paid time off is another issue because I find a lot of freelancers find they can't stop working because they see every day they don't work is actually lost pay. That's not covered. That's something that, you know, if I don't work today, I see that as a lost income that's coming in. So how important is it as a freelancer to manage that, to manage some time off as you're trying to, you know, make ends meet? It's really important, right? So when you decide your price, like Elrona was saying, you have to take a few things into consideration. You have to think about what is the absolute minimum you need to make every month and how much do you make so that you can, in fact, take some time off. That should be your starting point. Then you have to think about how many clients you can take at the price that you're offering. So you have to kind of combine all of this to account for creating the lifestyle that comes with freelancing. Sometimes it is more hectic, but those are decisions that you consciously have to make. In your employment world, those were decisions that your employer would make. Like you have to work on a weekend or Mm -hmm. you have to work late hours. Um, But in your freelancing life, those are decisions that you get to make. And they are conscious decisions. So the setup process, which is what we advocate, uh, and we have done that even through our course, the freelancer's blueprint was you have to put these down. You have to put down uh, things like how... How many hours will I work? Where will I work? What is going to be my schedule? You know, you people have this concept that with freelancing, it means I can be free. It does kind of mean that you have flexibility, but it doesn't mean that you can just do everything without any structure. Just a final one for you, Ilrona. Tell us a little bit about SNK Consulting. What work do you do with freelancers? We already have a message that's come in from Bilal from GuidePoint, which is a supplier of project-based subject matter experts and specialty advisors who's looking to connect with you both. So we'll give you his number so that you guys can be in touch as well. Thank you. SNK is predominantly HR consulting is what we do. We manage the end, end-to-end HR services for our clients. We work with SME clients and startup clients, and we help them with HR consulting work, HR outsourcing work, and also a lot of different sort of 
HR services when people are setting up their offices in Dubai from a people perspective. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining us today, giving us some, some advice, especially as a lot of people are thinking about moving into freelancing, taking a little bit more ownership of their time, working on their own terms as well. So thank you so much for thank that. You so thank much you for so having much for having us. For having us. Thank you. The voice there of Elrona Silva D'Souza and Desma D'Souza. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Happy weekend if that started for you or if that's about to start in the next couple of hours. You're tuned into the agenda with myself, Sonal, and with Zena as well. And Zena, you know I love putting you on the spot. Of course. <laughs> I never do well with these things, but a, go ahead. One of the things we're talking about today is the topic or the concept of sleep divorce. And that's because actress Cameron Diaz has been on a podcast. It's called Lipstick on the Rim. And she's made some headlines for saying this. We should normalize. We should normalize like separate bedrooms. Thank you. Do thank you. you. Yeah. Thank you. About it. If you're, you're true, Wait. you're like, I would just meet. And that's the, to By me, way? like I would literally like, I have my house, you have yours. We have the family house in the middle. I will go and sleep in my, my room. You go sleep in your room. I'm fine. I don't know about the multiple houses she's discussing there. That's a I little know. bit. <laughs> it's a bit elitist. Yeah. But your house. the idea is normalizing separate bedrooms basically sleep divorce the idea of you and your partner each have your own bedroom and each of you sleep separately in those bedrooms she's suggesting having a bedroom in the middle that they meet in but of course she's Cameron Diaz she's perfectly wealthy to be able to have multiple bedrooms for this um and she said this while she was discussing her marriage of eight years to the good Charlotte um band member Benji Madden she said he's wonderful nothing is wrong with her marriage but she just doesn't want to tolerate his sleeping habits and in a survey conducted in June this year it's surprising Zena how many people said that they're into this idea yeah so in the states more than a third of Americans say they occasionally or consistently sleep in another the room from their partner. That survey was conducted by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. So Cameron might be onto something. She might indeed. And so we wanted to find out a little bit more about this, if good sleep is an important factor in maintaining a healthy marriage. So we've got sleep specialist Julie Mallon. She is the founder of Nurture to Sleep joining us in the studio. Morning, Julie. Good morning. Thanks so much for coming in for this. How, uh, tell us a little bit about your reaction to the fact that, you know, you're starting to see more prominent people advocate for the idea of of sleeping in separate bedrooms it's still such a foreign concept to to so many so what do you make of the term sleep divorce because even the term itself is it's a bit negative. judgmental isn't it it is yeah it, it it does have negative connotations and i'm sure anyone who has gone through the divorce will see that actually there isn't much humor in it so i think we do need to take it a little bit more cautiously but i also think that the whole idea of you know sleeping in the same bed is largely socially constructed, you know, a belief system that we have been given. It's not based on science at all. So, um, but it certainly is beginning to get more and more power behind it. And I think a big part of this, we are starting to have a much greater awareness of the importance of sleep. So I think this is one of the main drivers is that we are hearing how important sleep is. And it, we also know that when we don't sleep well, that has a, a huge impact on every part of our daily activity, you know, whether it's our cognitive function, whether it's our interaction with our partners, we know that that's also depleted when we are sleep deprived. 
What does the science and research say about sharing a bed with somebody else? How much does that actually impact our sleep? Um, There's more and more science now, thankfully, because most of the science before has always been on a, you know, one person in a bed in a lab. So it's not actually that helpful to us in home with partners. Mm -hmm. So we have to really do look at the science. And if we're looking at certainly the most recent science is showing that if you sleep with a partner, for example, who is a snorer, your sleep quality, who is not the snorer, goes down by 50%. Now, again, we're really seeing that sleep quality is just as important, if not more, than quantity. So if your sleep quality has gone down by 50% that night, and just to kind of put it into some kind of context, we know that when you sleep for four hours or less a night, your anti-cancerous cells drop by 70% that night. And that's evidence-based. That's not opinion or... Mm. So we, we do have to take it quite seriously. Is this something that's more normal than we would realize here in the UAE? How much are we starting to see this emerge? Well, I mean, we've just got to look at, you know, throughout history, you know, Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip. They had a very happy marriage for a number of years. And of course, they slept separately. Um, the Beckhams, the Beckhams sleep separately. Um, and so we just need to bring it more out into the open. And of course, since Cameron Diaz, but there are more and more couples who are looking to find a way. And you're finding a way that works for both of you, because it could be that your chronotype doesn't match your partner's. Um, you know, it could be that you're an owl and your partner is a lark. So whereas he wants to be up and out, you're working late into the night because that's when you are at your most creative. So that can build resentment. Hmm. So it's about finding a path for you. And what's the reaction that you get from people who start to try this out? Do people try it out and then never go back? Or do people who try it out absolutely love it? Oh, no, that's quite interesting because... There's a study that came out of Australia and what the, um, the evidence was showing was that the, they did do the sleep divorce, but within three months they were back, 26% were back sleeping together, even though their sleep was much better when they were apart, but because they missed their partner. So, which is quite sweet, isn't it? Yeah. But it's not, I mean, it's not just sweet. It's actually, again, showing us that it's finding your way. Um, So ultimately, if you are having, because first of all, you start to get, you know, annoyed and resentful towards your partner if you're being kept awake whilst they're sleeping. So rather than get to that point, It's about open communication. It's like, let's try it. I'm really, really tired. So let's just try this for a while and see, does our sleep improve? But certainly the research is showing that your sleep quality does improve, although it's also interesting with male, female, because the research is showing that with a male, when they don't have a good night's sleep, their relationship with their partner is compromised. Whereas with the female, when they have a bad day with their partner, their sleep is compromised. Huh. It's, it's, it's interesting. That is very interesting. And yeah, it is such an emotional thing for so many people. Uh, you definitely find 
that sometimes one person wants to do it in in a couple, the other person doesn't want to try it out. Obviously, a lot of people see, you know, sleeping together and waking up together is an important part of intimacy and connection. So, Julie, if you'll stay with us, we'll get into some of those more emotional aspects and also how best to navigate something like this as well. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. You are tuned in to The Agenda. I'm Sonal Rupani, and we're talking all things sleeping in separate beds from your partner. We do have uh, Julie Mellon. She's a sleep expert and founder of Nurture to Sleep in with us today to talk about this. And Julie, we've been talking about the importance of sleep so far, about why certain people try this out in terms of sleeping in different beds. But there's a lot that goes along with this because you've mentioned sometimes people try it out and they realize they miss their partner. For a lot of people, the ritual of going to bed and waking up together, it's so important to connection, to intimacy. So maybe you're getting better sleep, but there is probably also some cost to this. Are there downsides to people that decide to sleep in in different beds? Do they actually see a little bit of a change in their connection that they have? So ultimately, communication is what's going to make the biggest difference. And we know that being in a relationship, navigating these differences is also what is going to make the best outcome. And It's going into it where both partners are agreeing to it. It can't be that just one partner. So, for example, I had one couple that, you know, were telling me about how hard it was for them to sleep. Now, their question to me was, is it a bad thing that we are? Now, they didn't say that that's what they were doing. And then at the end of the conversation, it was, okay. so actually this is what we're doing and that's why it works for us. But they... They were not wanting to reveal it until they were, you know, getting my response. Like there's a stigma around it. Yes, yes, very much so. But it really worked for them because like, for example, his working hours were very kind of, um, you know, nine till six, seven. But hers being freelance, you know, she'd have these huge deadlines. And so she would be working late until the night. He was getting really not happy that she was kind of sneaking into bed and sneaking out again and his sleep was being disrupted. So what happened first with them was they were beginning to get annoyed with one another Mm. and it wasn't working. So that's when they started to have these conversations and there was resistance from one of the partners. But then when they saw that they were actually much happier and they built the rituals in. So the connection was there where the rituals were still there for their bedtime um, like she would be an owl and he would get up early in the morning and then he'd go and, you know, make a pot of coffee and come and the two would snuggle up and they'd have their intimacy. Right. So it was still possible. It was still having their rituals without for it having any kind of discourse within their relationship. And I think the big reason about this as well is the title, you know, sleep divorce. It tends to suggest there's a problem, but it's not actually. It's it should be more about a sleep alliance rather than a sleep divorce. Mm, I like that. I love Just rebranding it. Mm, yeah. yeah. I have a question. Is device use a big factor because I've been sent out of our bedroom because my phone was too bright and I just couldn't stop scrolling? zena <laughs> <laughs> has got a TikTok problem for anybody that doesn't know Zena. Yes. <laughs> Whether it's a sleep divorce or not, the screen is the big... You should not bring your phone into your bedroom. Oh, no. It needs to be out That causes problems within a relationship. Never mind, you know, anything to do with whether you're sleeping together or not. That causes disconnect. 
So it's how we view connect and disconnect. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes we'll be agreeing to watch a Netflix show and then five minutes into it, I'm not really feeling it. So I start scrolling and then, you know, my husband finds it really rude. And also the phone's brighter than the TV screen. And so I get sent out of the bedroom. It happens on a regular basis. And I can understand now why that is a problem. <laughs> See, a New Year's, New Year's resolution for you, I think. Yeah, but also, also we've got to really look at the phones. You know, the, the light coming off your phone is the intensity is so much greater. So it's totally disrupting your biological clock. So it's telling your brain that it's two o'clock in the afternoon, not 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night. Now, this, the, screen, the TV screen is not good for you, but it's certainly better than using the phone. Zena, would you try this, the whole sleeping in different beds thing? Or do you find it easy enough to sleep with a partner? I have tried it uh, a many times during my maternity leave only because, you know, I had a baby and yeah. it was just easier to stay with a baby. But I don't think I want to do it. Really? No. I think it's. Um, I know we've discussed it and di sleep divorce is has a negative connotation, but I do feel that if you're not sleeping in the same bedroom, in the same bed, that's not really a marriage. Sorry, after 30 minutes of discussing this, I, I'm still not <laughs> convinced. Well, it's fair enough. I mean, we were talking about the stigma earlier and the fact that, you know, again, a lot of people see it as the beginning of the end. If you're not sleeping together, that's a bad sign. So, Julie, it's been really interesting to hear the alternative perspective to this, like the idea of sleep alliance, partnering on making sure both people get a good night's rest definitely no and it's just if it's working for you then it has to be what works for you as a couple I think that's ultimately what you're working towards it's not about what anybody else thinks. It's about if it works for you. Let us know if you would try this on 4001. If you're already trying it as well, give us your review. Do we all need to switch over? Have you seen the light? Do we all need to get there? Let us know. Get in touch on the text lines for now, Julie. That's all we have time for. But I do want to raise the fact that you do have a sleep clinic coming up. Yeah, well, it's a sleep retreat, which is so exciting. And the sleep retreat is going to be happening in January at M Gallery. And there's... We, there's going to be workshops around sleep. There's going to be, like, for example, I'm working with the chef. So we're choosing the food that is going to support sleep. Um, we're going to be look, looking at different um, aids that are going to help sleep, different activities such as yoga. So the focus is about implementing and creating the best sleep possible, but with, with tools to take away with. All right, you can get in touch with Julie Mallon. She is a founder of Nurture to Sleep. If you want to find out a little bit more about that, thank you so much, Julie, thank for joining us today. Thank you so much today. for having me. I've really enjoyed it, as always. Thank you. Thank you for coming in today. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Returning our attention now to a news story that caught our eye. The RTA has said they want all delivery vehicles to be electric bikes soon. They want to reduce carbon emissions and they're planning to update licensing and registration requirements as well to encourage delivery companies to go electric. And the authorities also said it's aiming to have charging stations across the city to support this. Now, Kareem had announced it would introduce electric delivery bikes on Dubai's roads by the end of this month as well. And one company that's been a pioneer, it's fair to say, in this space has been One Moto. We've got founder and CEO Adam Ridgeway joining us now to talk about this story. Uh, Adam, good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for joining us. And I feel like I have to start by saying Merry Christmas. 
And a very <laughs> Merry Christmas to you. It's, it's that time, isn't it? It is, indeed. It's happening. Yeah, tell us, I mean, tell us your reaction to this news, because this is something that you've been pushing forward for a while. One Moto supplies electric delivery vehicles to a number of companies out there already, Talabak, Carefor, Instashop, um, and you, you're already in 10 different countries to date. So tell us a little bit about how you feel about seeing this being pushed on a broader scale now. This is incredible. So I've been part of a steering committee with the RTA for, for quite some time. And in 2020, when we launched, it was very much a knowledge transfer. How are we going to get these bikes into market? How are they going to be adopted by the customers? We really had to prove that they work. And uh, we've had five summers of proof. So our bikes are more than tried and tested. They're trusted in the market. And our customers are buying them and then rebuying them and increasing their fleets. It needs to be transitional. And, uh, and having the RTA endorse everything that we've said um, and then sort of go off and and do their own research to make sure that when they make that decision, it's the right one to see this article published that we sort of knew was, was in the making is absolutely fantastic. It's really sort of harnessing everything that we have, have been saying to help the environment, the welfare and safety of the riders. And of course the profitability of the last mile sector of, of the asset owners or fleet operators. It's brilliant. Now, Adam, how many e-bikes have you deployed? You've uh, been working with all these companies and you've got, uh, you're in conversation with a few more companies. How many e-bikes are we talking about in terms of the rollout in within the next year? Well, in the next year, we, we don't know the figures. Sorry, I do know figures that are in the pipeline, but we, we don't know in terms of the the execution of that or the action upon so we've got a, um, a, a target to decarbonize all last mile vehicles in the UAE. We've been very, very vocal with that for the past year or so. And we are looking for a 10% market share by the end of 2024. So to give you some idea, um, there's 92,000 delivery bikes on the roads in Dubai right now. So we're hoping for that sort of eight to 9,000 mark by, um, by the end of next year or the start of 25. And you mentioned there about the welfare of drivers. How will switching to e-bikes actually help them? It's incredibly important. I've actually spent time as a delivery rider just to really understand how these these guys work and how they operate and how to communicate with them. Like it's very on a macroeconomic level of, you know, saving saving just a few dirhams means so much. So we took that into the telemetry, which is the data, the big data and, and AI that supports um, our vehicles, but also the delivery operators of their routing. So by optimizing routes, they can deliver three times more. So the productivity is increased tremendously. And if the productivity is increased, reducing the working pressure, they can deliver more, therefore earn more whilst being safer. And by optimizing these routes, creating these micro zones, it really, really helps the riders earn more. So at the moment they're spending between six and 800 dirhams a month on their, of their salary on petrol which is around 29% of their gross annual salary. So by eliminating that, that's an extra nearly 30% in their pockets. And then you've got the productivity. So they're delivering more big, uh, more packages each day, which then generates more income. We've tried and tested that. So it's incredibly important that we look after the riders' welfare. I think a lot of people don't know that the fuel is coming out of their own salaries. And, and the percentage that you just said is, is really remarkable and, and kind of upsetting, actually. It is. And it's but be, sort of beyond that, it's how do we make it profitable for the entire industry, like every stakeholder? So it's not just about the riders, but they need to be safer. Working less hours, less time on the road naturally makes them safer by proxy. So 
but it's also making sure that we can offer our vehicles to be affordable. So we've got this uh, finance option that actually makes electric vehicles cheaper to to run and operate, not just on the operational level, but to lease per month than petrol. It's taken us quite a few months to get there. But because of that, it's it's really helped that growth. And, you know, you addressed this already that usually a lot of the drivers are trying to make their deliveries as quickly as possible. When it comes to charging, how much time does it take for them to charge? Is there enough infrastructure, enough stations to manage this influx influx of e-bikes? Because, you know, we've all seen the hordes of motorcycles that are parked in certain locations. How on earth is there going to be enough um, charging stations to to be suitable for that that great number? Yeah, lovely. So it, it, it comes with a combination of understanding the, the the network of riders, their working patterns. And what we've got is our vehicles actually don't need charging stations in terms of the same stations you have for EVs or, uh, sorry, um, electric cars. So we have three pin charging. So during a rider's lunch break, if they want to top up 70, 80 percent, take about an hour. And that's sort of part one, which solves a problem with the, say, the range anxiety or just the necessity. But some of the operators that have optimized their routes in a, it's called lollipop model, where they go from base to customer and back to base, they're doing a lot less kilometers per day, which means that the battery swapping or the range anxiety doesn't come into play. But then we also have swappable battery banks, which our riders can swap in uh, under a subscription, they can swap in, swap out their batteries within seconds. And if you want to take the battery out and charge it overnight, you've got the option to do that as well. So it's one of the values of convenience across every stakeholder. And by decoupling the cost of the battery and the bike, it makes it even more affordable and, uh, and, and productive. Adam, thanks so much for coming on to have a chat about this news story. And we're looking forward to seeing that continued growth as, as you've talked about. It's amazing. Thank you once again, and enjoy making some festive memories, Sonal. Thank you so much. Take care, Adam. All the best. Thanks Thanks again for joining us. Uh, That's the voice there of Adam Ridgway. He is the founder and CEO of One Moto. He has been a pioneer for pushing forward electric motorbikes for quite a while now. So it's positive to see that news from the RTA saying they want to reduce carbon emissions. They want all delivery vehicles to be electric bikes soon. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. And let's move on to gift giving because we have Dan, Dan, Dan <laughs> Kalyaniwala, our gadget guru, who's on the reboot usually with us. He's also executive editor at Tea Break Media. How's it going, Don? <laughs> so funny enough, that, that pronunciation's okay. That's is the it? That's the Desi Indian. Okay, Pakistani so I can get side. away with yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dan is that, that side of things. <laughs> okay. Uh, but I'm, I'm good. used to Dan, though, so yeah. I'm going to stick with that. Fair enough. I'm okay. good, though. I'm good. It's, I'm good. I'm very happy to be back. Yeah, it's so great to see you. <laughs> we obviously have a good time on the reboot, so we're looking forward to our New Year's Eve show that we're going to have coming up as well. But we wanted to catch up with you ahead of Christmas. Yes. Because, you know, for a lot of our listeners who celebrate the holiday, uh, some people are a bit last minute, yeah. myself included, although this year I'm proud of myself. I can imagine you are as well. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it's hard to get gifts, especially when you're giving them to people like yourself, Dan, who okay. are incredibly picky. You were just telling me a moment ago about how you are the worst person to attempt to get a gift for I, ever. I, 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 I am. It's... Uh... The thing is, because I'm I'm all all encompassed by tech, people think that to give me tech gifts is the good thing. Because it's your passion. But it's not. It's the worst because it's the thing I have all the knowledge about and I'm super picky. So like even my wife 
bless her soul, she she was trying to surprise me for Christmas and she was trying to get something which is not available here. It's in the US. And like, I, I'm just sitting there and I'm like, oh, you know this. So it's the Ray-Ban Meta glasses, which we've discussed before. We have discussed right? on the Reba before. The ones, I would have thought that would be right up your street. Yeah, but that's Unless the thing. you already have them. Like I said, I'm super picky. So How the, many the options are there though? The, the total 105 based on color options, oh, okay. based on Fine. the kind of transition lenses you can get <laughs> okay. and so on and so forth. So I'm like sitting there with her and I'm like, oh, whenever, I had, at this point I didn't know. And I was like, you know, so I, whenever I get these, I have to figure it out because I really like the blue ones, but I want the black ones, but then I don't like the red lens, I want the gray lens. And then she just looks at me, she's like, okay, now I'm, I'm really nervous. So I, can, I, can I just tell you that I'm supposed to get those for you? <laughs> and I was like, fair enough. So yeah, I'm horrible to buy tech oh. things for. Just buy me like generic stuff. That, yeah. that works out. Things that are not tech related that you wouldn't think to buy for yourself because you're so focused on tech. Correct. Now, all of us have a person like Dan in <laughs> our lives who is way too picky and hard to please when it comes to presents. But what's number one on your wish list? If, you, if it's not tech, okay. what can somebody impress you with? Right now? Yeah. Clothes. Okay. I'm, I'm in desperate, dire need of clothes. <laughs> like, I just have everything falling apart, c- color bleeding, tearing. There's just no time, right? There's just no time. Right. There's no time. I like that. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about a couple options for people out there who are still looking to do some holiday shopping. Right. Let's start on the high end. Because okay. that's always the fun place Done. to start. Done. Let's say money is no object. Okay. You've got all the money in the world to spend on this person's present. Right. Where are we reaching for? What are some really good finds for people to look at? So the easiest, the thing that I got asked the most this year, oh, because obviously Obviously, people have been messaging me saying, hey, I want to get this, I want to get that. The number one thing for me was the PlayStation 5 Slim, because they updated the PlayStation 5 uh, from the original body to a smaller, slimmer body. And uh, that was my number one discussion with everyone. Should I get this combo? Should I get it with the controller? Should I get it with the game? That was it. Now, now that's, we're talking above 2,000 dirhams. Um, I think it's the, the, the best gift you can get. Because for the very simple reason that it's, it's guaranteed happiness. Let's put it that way. Okay. And if the person you're buying this for, a friend, family member, whoever, mm-hmm. is a gamer, it, do you run into similar risks of no. buying you tech? No. I mean, maybe you could go wrong on the game bundle you buy or the controllers you buy. Maybe. But the device itself, absolutely not. Okay. Absolutely any, not. any other options for people who are definitely no-go on gaming? That are on the high end of the spectrum. On for the gifts. high end of spectrum for gifts, um, well, <laughs> this one's this one's. Co- I, I have a lot of guys messaging me for this one, but it's usually the Dyson Coral, uh, mm-hmm. the the straightener that they have. Yeah, it is the best thing for well, women and any other long-haired people like myself. Like yourself. Very luscious locks today, I must say. You've got a little extra bounce going on. Some extra kind of ringlet curls (laughs) happening today. Yes. So, well, clearly I didn't use the straightener today, but um, it is the best gift you can get for for anyone who just does their hair, maintains their hair. It is such a good thing. Like people go on and tell me, and I, I, I feel like you'd be the one to ask me this, that why spend 2,000 plus dirhams on a straightener? Oh, no. I want this straightener. Oh, Maddie, if you're listening, and I'm pretty sure he hasn't gotten my Christmas <laughs> present yet. I mean, this is like one of the things that's number one on my I list. I agree. I agree. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you this. The Dyson Corral is one of the greatest uh, products. Uh, you know, the, the saying, the better mousetrap? Yeah. It is. It is brilliant. I've had it since day one that of its launch. And my wife and me live on it. She yeah. absolutely lives on it. I use it when needed. But first of all, it's wireless. Second of all, it does straightening like nothing I've seen before. And third of all, it is 
just a seamless experience to use. I, I'm telling you, it is the best gift for anyone who's like running around last minute. Go for it. I, I suggested eyes closed. I agree. For your long-haired friends and family, mm-hmm. I think if their straightener is more than a couple of years old, unless they're particularly picky about having like a GHD or something, I, I think you cannot go wrong with this. I can't think of anybody that wouldn't love to receive that gift. So I'm, I'm agreeing with you. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. You've got The Agenda on with Sonal, with Zena, and with Dan, who is our gadget guru. It's basically our excuse to make this a little segment about the reboot. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. which is our tech show, tech show every every other Sunday, I should say, from 10 a.m. So you can always tune into that. Um, what we're discussing today, of course, though, are Christmas gifts for people doing a little bit of last minute shopping. Zena, are you all set? Do you have all your Christmas gifts ready to go? Are you still kind of running around trying to find some things? I'm not set at all. And after this, I'm going to rush to the toy stores, the, you know, the the mall Same and see that. what I can get for yeah. my loved ones. Same. That's literally my plan. <laughs> Everybody has got like different budgets that they keep in mind for different right. different people in different situations. Now, we talked about the real reaches, the kind yeah. of money is no issue. Let's be a little bit more pragmatic now. Let's set okay. a budget of about a thousand. If somebody's got about that budget, what's a, what's a good find? Okay, so something I saw literally a little while ago and I genuinely thought they were awesome were Bose's new over-ear headphones. Um, so they're called the Bose Quiet Comfort Ultras. Yeah. Super comfortable, super nice, great audio quality and in the thousand up and down a bit range. Are um, these a new version? Yes. The Ultras? I mean, how are they different from the other over-ear Bose So headphones? basically they had another series called the, the 700 series, which they've killed off, mm-hmm. and they've merged that series into their Quiet Comfort series. Um, this is the top of the line in the consumer segment that you can get. So it is the best noise cancellation you can get. And like, I can vouch for this. This is a great battery life, like 24 hour battery life, super comfortable. You don't feel them on your head. It, overall, one of the best that you can get compared to the Sony's. Like in that range, in the thousand range, that's what you'd get. Nice pair of headphones. They're good for travel, good for work, good for daily calls. Um, just they, they fit into our current hybrid modern lifestyle really well. I also think it's the perfect kind of gift for somebody, assuming they don't already have a top of the line headset right. range. And you'll be able to tell, obviously, if somebody you know and love has kind of slightly older dated headphones, maybe not the greatest quality. It's that upgrade that sometimes you don't think about spending for yourself, but when right. you get it, it's life-changing. Absolutely. And that's Agreed. the best kind of gift. That is. That absolutely All is. All right, let's move a little bit lower down the line. Let's okay. say somewhere in the six to 800 range. Okay. So again, New product, uh, and I've really been running around with these. I have them here with me. They're called the Huawei Free Clip Earbuds, mm-hmm. all right? Now, th- I don't think, I'll show it to you. I don't think from this distance you can see it. But you know what this looks like to me? This looks like a really big version of the nose um, yeah. rings that people have yeah. in between their septum, where it's got or, a bit of a round ball on one end, a little hoop, half hoop, and a little round ball on the other. Or a mini headphone. Yeah, or that. <laughs> but that's basically <laughs> no, what the it, size of it made me think of a nose ring. Dan. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, here, here. That's, that's what don't, that's don't, what, don't that's put what it in your nose. Don't, don't put, put it in, in my nose. nose. Come on. But no, that's basically what they are. They are these are what are called over-ear earbuds, right? So they don't go into your ear they kind of hang on the side of it of them and they are awesome i'm in love with these in terms of daily use like i've i've not had a call without them since i got these they are so comfortable so light they're super nice they do look really slick 
I have to say. Yeah. I like the look of them compared to some of the other. Oh, wait, you haven't seen this yet. See. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, Dan is now removing his studio headphones. He's clipping they go on them the side in. like this. Like, oh, like very a little cool. Earring. So they kind of don't insert directly Correct. into your ear, which I actually hate that. Yeah. It creeps me so out having something in my ear. That's exactly who this is for. For people who don't like it being inside their ear, it's it just stays out and channels audio straight into your ear canal. Right. They're super cool. You don't so have I really to like these. Poke them in. They're yeah. just hanging out a little bit, but there's a clip that keeps them Correct. in place. That's exactly how it works. Wow, they look so, pretty cool. These are really nice. I really like these. I think these are a genuinely good product that I saw this year and I've really been happy to have them. Okay, where are we going now? Let's say about 500 or under. Not not at that lower end for Secret Santa yet, okay. but in that kind of more 500-ish, so 4 500. I have two things here and I love both these products. Okay. Both were gifted to me. One is the Click and Grow Smart Garden. All this right? is another thing I've been eyeing. I feel yeah. like you're reading my mind with this I list. I love it. I love it. So the Click and Grow is basically a small little garden that has its own little light. It's it's meant to be tabletop. You can grow uh, basil, coriander, that those that that family of plants on it of, right. of vegetables or whatever you call whatever you want to call them. But it's tabletop. Uh, it does its own thing. I think uh, if you buy it from Virgin Megastore, I think it even comes with little basil in the box. Um, super easy to use. I'm. I have loved having it in the house for a while now. It's right there on my desk, and I work in a very dark room, so I don't have to worry about light because it has its own light source. Um, and it's just nice to have on your desk, and it's like a living, breathing thing there, and that's really nice. I'm really intrigued about the different herbs and stuff in terms of actually having this in your kitchen and being right. able to use it. Because, you know, obviously you go to the supermarket sometimes, you get the little basil plant, and you think, I'm going to keep this alive. <laughs> and you plant it in a little pot in your kitchen, and without fail, sort of four days later, it's wilting over, you feel yep. bad, you throw it out. I have never successfully kept one of those plants alive. I mean, how good is it at you know, if you wanted to actually use those herbs, if I guess, you know, basil is a common one. What else can you first of all grow? And how long does it last for? Is it difficult so to I'm, actually keep them alive? I'm right now on like my third week. Okay. So I haven't come to uh, harvesting yet. Okay. So I, I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll update this part on it. But the, the, the entire process to get here has been really nice. That okay. much I can tell you. And the one you have just has one Yes, plant. One, because one, there are some plant. that give you multiple multiple options. pods. Exactly, yeah. this one has only one. Okay, got so it. and the second gift is the Ember Smart Mug. All right, that's exactly. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. <laughs> I love this. We have never been more in sync on tech <laughs> than we are today. Most of the time, you talk about things that I have no idea, and I have to ask you everything I'm about it because I've never heard of it before. I'm jumping from joy right now because you have a look on your face you don't have usually. Usually, yeah. you're just like, oh, he's going to explain it now. But like now, you're like, I know this, and I'm loving this. Yeah. But the Ember Smart Mug is basically. Um, a mug that sits on your desk that has USB, uh, you power it by USB and it controls the temperature of the drink based on how you set it. And I'm someone who takes two, three hours to drink my coffee. The, my second coffee, my second coffee. So like, it'll just lie there, it'll, become, it'll go from hot coffee to iced coffee and it's just like part of my day. But I would love if it could just stay warm the yeah. whole two, three hours. Because I just, I sip on it. It's always there. There's always a cup of coffee on my desk. I love this. This changed the game for me. Now, the thing about keeping your coffee hot, we're going to get a bit sort of technical yes. into preferences here, is sometimes, you know, if you try to reheat your coffee, you can burn it. Yes. But this is kind of keeping it at a temperature where it's just keeping it warm, Correct. but it's still keeping the taste. Correct. It's exactly keeping Genius. that taste. Yes. So it is. Is the heating technology in the mug itself or do you kind of place it on a little heating it's pad? On a, it's on a little pad, which is connected. It's, it's in technicality, the same thing you do with the kettle. Yeah. It's the same thing. It's just that it's... 
they've, it's sleek and it looks really nice right. and stuff like that. But it's the same basic technology where the, the pad at the bottom is using, I'm guessing, some sort of thermal plate inside to keep things warm. You know, and I, the, what, the example that you used of having it at your desk to me is the perfect application yeah. of this because I thought, okay, I've seen it before, obviously, as you can tell from my facial expression. <laughs> and I'm excited about it in concept, but I haven't necessarily thought, I'm really into cute, cozy ceramic mugs, right? The look is really important to me when I'm having my coffee at home. I, I can't imagine having this little heating pad plugged in on my yeah. my coffee table, but at a desk where, Correct. like you said, you're kind of say it fits the look. It's functional. Yeah, yeah, it does definitely. the job. It does the job. Okay, final little one for you because this is my my biggest pet peeve around Christmas is secret Santa budgets. <laughs> you have this like, big group with your friends. You pick a name. Sometimes it's always the person you know the least in the group, so it's always the hardest to get something for them. And the budget is always impossibly small, right? right? Where you think, I can't actually get something with this. So let's say about 100 dirhams is the budget. 100, we'll push it to 150 because sometimes okay. people overspend, right? What can you do gadget-wise that will be good for any random Secret Santa recipient, whether you know them well or not? Okay, so I have a few here. All right, first and foremost, my standard is always some sort of smart speaker or earbuds because there are dime a dozen in that 100 dirham budget. All right, so if you don't really care about the person, you don't really want to make to put too much thought in this, there you go, enjoy yourself. But coming to this smart thing again, there is a smart kettle on Amazon. And it's from a random brand. You just have to type smart kettle. It'll show up for, I think, 89 dirhams. Okay. A friend of mine introduced me to this. And it's a small kettle. It has a coffee spout. I forget what that, that is called, a swan nose or something like okay, that. Okay, it's that kind of fancy coffee yeah, when you yeah, do yeah, pour overs, yeah, yeah, basically? Yeah, yeah, yeah correct. Yeah. And that has different temperatures for water. So you can heat up from 70, 80, 90, and 100 degrees, depending on how you like it. So you don't have to wait for the, the water to cool down once it's boiled. And that that's one that I absolutely love. Yep. And another one, and this I don't I don't know who this appeals to. I lost my mind when I saw it and I bought it like four seconds later, was a car charger, but it's um it has retractable cables. So there's no like dangling cables oh, around. Very good. Right? So it has um multiple ports, uh, but it has its own two cables, so lightning and type C. Okay. And it has two extra ports. That was also, I think, seventy eight dirhams. That is Probably the best Secret Santa present idea I've ever heard. Listen, I like the smart kettle, yes. but the you never know what somebody's kettle situation Correct. at home already is. With the car charger, I can't think of anybody that wouldn't want a better car charger where it isn't right? constantly in the way dangling down into the passenger Absolutely. seat. Absolutely. Agreed. Agreed. I, I'm telling you, I saw it. It was, I think, one of the fastest purchases I've made in years. I saw it and seconds later it was bought. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, you know what, Dan? We're running out of time, and I usually thank you for coming into the show. But I can't beat this thank you that's coming from Amanda, who has literally said to you, Dan, you have saved Christmas. I am so grateful to you. <laughs> I'm, I'm deeply honored. effusive message we've yes. had to one of our gadget talks ever. Yes. Uh, Amanda's also asking before we, I should have ended with a thank yeah, you, but has enough. also asked, what's the name of those over earbuds again, please? Well, over ear, the, the Huawei earbuds? Ones. Huawei Free Clip. Huawei free clip or the yes, earbuds that you're looking for. Amanda, thank you so much. Thank you for that message. You've made our day with I that. Love. Merry Christmas, Dan. Thank you very much. Merry ha Christmas to you happy guys. Happy shopping. Happy holidays. Yes, 100%. And we are going to actually, before I, I, I keep thinking of other things I want to ask you before <laughs> I let you go. I've said this about three times. We're going to be talking about Christmas and celebrating Christmas. Mm -hmm. Do you have big plans for Christmas? Do you kind of keep it simple or simple. do you go all out with the spend? Simple. Tune into the agenda every weekday from 10 a.m.